A few weeks ago, we had an episode about how to look good on Zoom calls and webinars. In that episode, I talked about how you can use a relatively new iPhone as your webcam and how it will look dramatically better than using even $700 worth of lights and webcams. Then, a couple weeks after that, we had an episode about how an economic war between China and Taiwan could cause iPhone and MacBook production to cease because the A16 and M2 chips are made in Taiwan and the phones and laptops are assembled in China. If those two countries were to go to economic war or even just get into an economic spat, iPhones and laptops would not be able to be assembled. And at the end of the episode, I made an argument that if you're on an older device, you should upgrade now before it's too late. These two episodes both gave a reason for upgrading to a new laptop and iPhone. Which pitch was more effective? Let me put it this way. After the second episode, I had enough listeners ask me for laptop recommendations that I have now added laptop recommendations to our official recommendations page at authormedia.com. The second pitch relied on a psychological phenomenon called loss aversion. This is where, for most people, they feel potential losses twice as strongly as they feel potential gains. I wish I could say I had planned this as a case study, but it just worked out that way. And if you're not careful, as an author, loss aversion makes it harder to sell books. You have to convince readers that your book won't be a waste of time and they won't feel guilty buying it. In fact, addressing these concerns is one of the primary purposes of a cover and blurb. You need to convince people they will finish the book and feel great reading it. But loss aversion doesn't have to be your enemy. It can actually increase sales rather than decrease sales. You just need to know how to use it. So how do you turn loss aversion from an enemy into an ally? How do you use loss aversion to supercharge your book sales, increase your margins, and even build goodwill with your readers? Find out in this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a living writing books worth talking about. This is one of our marketing psychology episodes, and when I talk about marketing psychology, I like to start by talking a bit about ethics. Why? Because marketing psychology is so powerful that it can be used for both good and for bad. And I want you to use it for good. A scalpel in a surgeon's hand is a tool of life. In a murderer's hand, it's a tool of death. The tool has not changed. It's how it's used that makes all of the difference. The more influential you become, the more seriously you need to take that influence. And marketing psychology is like an influence superpower. So I'm about to put a scalpel in your hands and I want you to use it with a good conscience. So how do you know if you're using loss aversion ethically? I'm going to give you two ancient guidelines. Again, I didn't invent ethics. <laughs> so the first guideline is do not lie. Psychology plus deception equals poison. In order to make good decisions, people need to know the truth. And the more you color the truth, the harder it is for you, people to make good decisions. You don't make decisions for people. Don't assume that you know better what someone needs. They know what they need, and they need the truth to be able to make that decision. 
If you feel like you need to deceive in order to sell something, stop selling that thing. The second rule of thumb is to do unto others, right? This is the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And this is a great rule because we all need help making good decisions. Doing the right thing is tricky, right? Knowing the right thing is easier than actually doing the right thing. And you want the people around you to help you make good decisions. And you feel cheated and manipulated when the people around you help you make bad decisions. So you want to use the power of marketing psychology to help people make decisions that are in their own best interest as decided by them. (laughs) And this actually connects with craft, believe it or not. Your book needs to be so good that you can promote it with a clean conscience, knowing that reading your book is in that person's best interests. If your book is so good that you know it won't be boring or make people feel gross inside, you're going to promote it so much more confidently. And if your book is boring or makes people feel gross inside, it doesn't need better marketing. It needs a rewrite. So those are our ethical guidelines. And we're actually going to revisit them a few times because how they apply is important. We're getting into some dangerous territory here with this episode. and I really want you to use this power for good. So let's get into the science behind loss aversion. If you ever took a psychology class in college, your professor may have demonstrated loss aversion. There's a famous classroom experiment that professors do where they'll hand out uh, free coffee mugs to half of the students, right? So now you have a mug and some of the students have a mug and some of the students don't have a mug. Now, these are randomly assigned. Some of the students who got a mug like coffee, some don't. And the professor will then ask the students how much money they would need to be paid to give up the mug that they just got for free. And then this professor also asked the students who didn't get a mug how much they would be willing to pay to buy a mug from one of the students who got a mug. Now, you would think that those prices would match pretty closely, right? Because the mugs are randomly distributed. But that's not what ends up happening. The prices end up varying wildly. The students with the mugs expect a far higher price to give up their mugs than the students without the mugs are willing to pay. This is a kind of sub-element of loss aversion called the endowment effect. And what basically what's happening is that the students with the mug need to be compensated both for the value of the mug and the psychological pain of losing the mug. <laughs> There's been a lot of research around this particular effect and really trying to price it because you know, we have dollars now, right? So exactly what is the value of loss aversion? And it turns out that we value losses twice as much as we value gains. So the pain of the loss is twice as strong as the pleasure of the gain. Now, this shifts a little bit. Wealthy people value gains a little bit higher. And it also scales with the size of the loss. So if someone said, hey, I'll flip a coin. If it's tails, you give me $1. If it's heads, I give you $2, right? That's a great bet, right? It's even odds for much better money, right? So you might take that bet, right? Because what's the worst you're going to lose is $1. But if somebody offered you that same bet, but you on tails would pay $10,000 and on heads would gain $20,000, now suddenly that's a scary bet, psychologically scary. Rationally, that's always a good bet, right? 50-50 odds to double your money. Is, is mathematically a really good choice, but it doesn't feel that way psychologically. 
Now, this is a three-minute summary of what would be a whole chapter in a psychology textbook, and I glossed over a lot of details. There's been a lot of research on loss aversion, and there's an excellent Wikipedia page on loss aversion. There's also a really great Wikipedia page on endowment effect, and I'll link to both of those in the show notes. And I imagine some of you are probably thinking, I don't need a scientist to tell me that losing money is painful. And fair enough, right? So what does this have to do with book marketing? Well, for most people, buying books feels risky. Most Americans don't buy or read books. So back in 1978, 8% of Americans read zero books last year. In 2014, 23% of Americans read zero books last year. It's a massive increase in the number of Americans who read zero books. But also, the amount of heavy readers dropped significantly. In 1978, 42% of Americans read more than 11 books in that year. 2014, that number dropped from 42% of Americans down to 28% of Americans. Massive drop in the number of people reading lots of books. I know this is hard to understand. You are an author, a book person. Your house is full of books and you're constantly buying more books. But most people are not like this. Why? Because for them, buying a book feels risky. So how does it feel risky? Well, people feel guilty about not finishing books. Well-meaning parents and teachers pile guilt trips on children who don't finish books. Those kids are made to feel like they have failed the book rather than the book failing them. They often carry this guilt with them for the rest of their lives. And for many adults, that shelf of unfinished books feels like a testament to moral failures as a human being. A little voice in their heads is whispering, if you were a better person, you would finish all those books, you worthless worm. Right? Like that little voice is a poisonous lie and it's bad for both readers and authors. Now, big book buyers, the kinds of people who buy lots of books, They realize that if they're not enjoying a book, they don't have to finish it. (laughs) This realization makes buying and reading books fun, right? Forcing yourself to read a book you're not enjoying makes you hate reading and hate yourself. So if this is you, I would like to give you permission with my authority as a man with a microphone (laughs) to not finish the books you are not enjoying. I absolve you of all guilt. (laughs) There are so many amazing books in this world, and life is too short to spend it reading the bad ones. So don't read the bad ones. (laughs) Speaking of which, the second reason why buying books is risky is because books are time expensive. Have you ever finished a book and felt, what a waste of time. I'm going to live the rest of my life and die and never get back the 10 hours I wasted on this book. People often feel this way after throwing a book across the room. (laughs) This is one of the worst feelings in the world. Time loss is perhaps the worst kind of loss. Losing money is one thing, but you can always make more money, but you can never make more time. So the loss of time is the subtle taste of death, and people hate the taste of death. A reader only needs to feel this way once to run from that feeling for the rest of their lives. These are the losses that readers are averse to, right? These are the headwinds that all authors face. So how do you keep them from torpedoing your sales? 
Well, one tactic is to reduce the risk. So let's explore that. Losing money is painful, right? Imagine if I asked you to pay a few dollars to listen to this podcast episode, right? Surely this episode is worth at least one cup of coffee, right? If it helps you sell a lot more books, it could easily be worth hundreds or even thousands of dollars. But the pain of paying even a tiny amount of money is so high, most people won't do it, right? That's why this podcast is free. It's able to help far more people being free than it could be being a paid podcast. Only a tiny fraction of listeners give back via Patreon. But they typically only do that after first listening to a bunch of free episodes. It's the free episodes that convince them that the extra patrons-only episode is worth paying for. Speaking of which, I should say, in our most recent patrons-only episode, we talked about Kickstarter, how to jolt sales of older novels, how to reach influencers to promote your book. We talked a little book funnel versus story origin and a lot more. It was one of the most fun episodes I've ever done. And if you become a patron, you'll get access to the replay. And you'll be able to attend live because the patrons-only episodes are recorded live and they have a lot of interaction between me and the uh, patrons who attend live. But anyway, how do you get people over that fear of paying money? Well, one option is to give them a free taste first, like what I'm doing right now with this free episode. So how do you give people a free taste of your book? Well, one way is with a free chapter, right? Imagine you're at the grocery store and the lady's handing out fresh strawberries. After you taste a ripe strawberry, you suddenly want to buy a box full of strawberries. This free sample strategy is the reason why physical bookstores allow readers to walk up to any book and start reading it right there in the bookstore. In fact, many of those bookstores have a coffee shop with tables and you can go and sit in the coffee shop and read a book you have not paid for. Why on earth would they let you do this? Because the more time you spend reading the book, the more the book feels like your book. After a while, you're not thinking about the money you'll lose buying the book. You are thinking about leaving your book there in the store and not knowing how it ends. That becomes more painful. <laughs> so you avoid the loss of your book by spending the money to find out how it ends. This is why Amazon really encourages authors and publishers to put the first chapter for free on Kindle Instant Preview. It's because Kindle Instant Preview boosts book sales. In fact, I recommend embedding Kindle Instant Preview on the book page on your website, which you can do very easily if you're using the My Book Table WordPress plugin, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Readers expect to be able to read the first chapter for free, so not offering the first chapter makes a book look like it has something to hide. So what else can you do other than a free sample chapter? Well, another option is a free short story. Give readers a free taste of your writing with a short story. And this is not just a taste like with a sample chapter. It's a complete meal, right? A short story, if well-written, has a satisfying and emotionally resonant conclusion. Most authors will turn these short stories into reader magnets by requiring readers to sign up for email updates in order to get access to the short story. And with this method, the perk is that you're not only introducing people to your writing, potentially your characters and your story world, but you're also building your email list at the same time. I have a bunch of episodes on this, and I'll link to them in the show notes. Uh, one is how to grow your email list using delicious reader magnets with Tammy Lebrecht. One is how to create a reader magnet. And one is how to write short stories with James Scott Bell. 
one of our very few craft episodes <laughs> on this podcast. I don't talk a lot of craft on novel marketing. This is more of a marketing podcast, but short stories are so powerful for marketing. I felt the need to do an episode just on short stories. Another way you can make your book seem less scary to buy is to get someone's friends to start talking about the book. So how do you get someone's friends to talk about your book? Well, you give it to them for free, of course. So making your book free for a short time can be an incredible way to reignite buzz for an older book that's dropped out of the conversation. This is a tactic called free pulsing. And we have an entire episode about how to free pulse your book. But here's the quick summary. With this method, you drop the price down to free for just a couple of days and you promote that price drop on email newsletters like BookBub. This creates a huge surge of downloads. It's not uncommon for a free pulsed book to get thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of new readers. And then after a couple of days, the book goes back to its normal price. And as those tens of thousands of readers are reading your book for the first time, you get an echo boom in paid sales as those people talk about your book to their friends. <laughs> so it's a great way to supercharge the buzz about your book and reduce that fear, right? Because it's a lot less scary to buy a book that all your friends have already read and vouched for. A free posting also is really good for increasing the number of reviews on Amazon because all those free copies count as verified purchases. <laughs> Even though they paid $0, they went through the transaction on Amazon and got the ebook. So Amazon knows they really do have that ebook and it really increases the number of reviews. Now there is one final form of free and that is perma-free. This is where you make the book permanently free. You're like, permanently free? How on earth can you make money off of a permanently free book? Well, it tends to work best for addictive books that are the first in a long series of paid novels. So if your novels are hard to put down with compelling characters and cliffhanger endings, you may see your revenue overall increase by making the first book free. A free book eliminates the pain of losing money, and interestingly, it often also eliminates the pain of not finishing the book. People don't feel guilty about the uncompleted free books on their Kindles the way they do about the physical books on their bookshelves. So psychologically, giving a free book a chance is a way easier effort. You're not risking as much as a reader you know, adding a free book to your Kindle as you are going to the store and buying a book that you now feel psychologically obligated to finish, whether you're enjoying it or not. <laughs> oh, what a toxic relationship with books. Okay, so that's one way of kind of mitigating loss aversion as a force opposing you, right? The wind is blowing in your face. These are some ways to fight it. But how do you get the wind in your back? How do you get loss aversion to actually help you sell more books? Well, that leads us to our second tactic, which is reverse coupons. But before I talk too much about reverse coupons, I need to briefly talk about inflation because these are very closely related. So inflation is really high right now. And despite the spin that the politicians are putting on it, it's not going down. So while top line inflation is growing slower than it was before, the core inflation rate, which is what the Federal Reserve looks at and what really is more important in many regards, is actually not just not going down, it's continuing to go up, 
We've had two months of core inflation growth as I record this with the latest numbers. And I'll have a link to an article all about it at USA Today if you want to read more about core inflation, if you're into that sort of thing. But I'm going to give you a kind of a quick cliff notes. So inflation works like interest in that it compounds on itself year over year. So if we have 6% inflation for four years, that's the same as having 26% inflation for one year. And 26%, that's the difference between a 499 ebook and a 599 ebook. So even if inflation doesn't go up more, it just stays at 6%, and we're not down to 6%, we're at 6 and change, depending on which inflation numbers you're looking at. That means you're going to be making as much off of a 599 book as you used to be making off of a 499 book. Or put another way, if you keep your book the same price, you're getting a 6% pay cut every year, and that pay cut compounds year over year. So you're eventually going to have to raise the price of your book, especially if you want to be able to profitably advertise that book. Right? If you want to be able to buy ads and keep getting readers, the book's got to be profitable, and that's going to mean raising the price. Right? The, the rising tide of inflation raises all the boats eventually. So how are you going to raise the price? Are you going to do it quietly in the dead of night and hope no one notices? For the love of good book sales, no, a thousand times no. If you're going to raise prices, blow a trumpet first. Tell everyone on your email list at the end of the month, the price of my ebook is going from $4.99 to $5.99. This is your last chance to get my book before the price goes up. Readers are about to lose the ability to get the book at the current lower price. This makes not buying your book feel like the loss. <laughs> Suddenly, loss aversion has become your friend. Knowing the price is about to go up also adds valuable urgency and anchoring, which are two other marketing psychology principles. And I'll link to the episodes on those points in the show notes. And the combination of all of this inspires readers to take action now. But is this ethical? Well, let's look at our two rules. The tactic of announcing a future price increase is honest, right? <laughs> as long as you're telling the truth, right? You say you're going to raise the price, and then you do raise the price. Does it follow the golden rule? I think so. Wouldn't you prefer if a gas station posted both today's price and tomorrow's higher price? Right? That is doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I will say, I recently had a reverse coupon on my course, Obscure No More. The course was in beta as I was working on it, and it had a significant beta discount. The beta discount was coming to an end. So I didn't end that discount in the dead of night. I gave everyone a lot of warning. I had two months of reminders and announcements and webinars letting everyone know the price is going up, the price is going up. This is your last chance to get the course before the price goes up. The result was that we had the two best sales months Author Media has ever experienced. And since the price went up, I've had zero authors complain that the price went up. Why? Because they all had plenty of time to get the course before the price increase. Now, I should say the price increase was not because of inflation. The plan from the beginning was to charge full price for the course once it was ready. And I may need to raise the price again, you know, at some point in the future due to inflation, right? The future is uncertain and inflation may continue. And let me tell you that if I do have to raise the price on this or any of my other things, I'm going to blow a trumpet first. I'm going to give everyone lots of warning to buy it before the price goes up. I feel like this is the 
golden rule method, and it really helps bring in more sales, right? It's good for readers and it's good for authors. Loss aversion is also the power behind scarcity. So a lot of these marketing psychology principles reinforce each other. Like once you start understanding the psychology of marketing, you realize how they're connected. And when something is scarce, and and let me explain what I mean by that. You know, let's say you're hosting a live event for readers and there's only 100 tickets, right? Those tickets are scarce. It's not an artificial scarcity. It's a real scarcity. And if a reader doesn't buy a ticket before they sell out, they've lost the ability to attend that event forever, right? This is the same with a limited edition hardback, right? Once they're gone, they're gone. If they don't buy a copy now, all chance is lost. And so that scarcity creates a loss aversion where people suddenly want to act now rather than waiting, which helps you fight another one of your enemies as a bookseller, which is procrastination, right? Readers won't do anything today if they can do it tomorrow. And so you want to motivate people to act now because tomorrow never comes. And I encourage you to re-listen to my episode on scarcity. This is the diamond water paradox episode. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. And I suspect now that you understand what loss aversion is, you'll hear that episode on scarcity with new ears, and it may give you some even more ideas. I'm not covering all of the ways that you can use loss aversion here. I'm I'm more trying to teach you the principle of loss aversion so you can start to apply it in different ways. And one, to mitigate it as an enemy, but also to, to make it your friend, to make it your ally. Now, there's one marketing tactic I recently heard about that's really made me sick that uses loss aversion I want to warn you about. So car dealerships will sell someone a car and then in the fine print hide the fact that the sale is not final. The dealership will then yo-yo the car buyer back into the dealership telling them that their loan was not approved. The car buyer then learns that the price of the car has gone up or the loan terms have changed and gotten worse or maybe even both. And this is after they've already bonded with the car, for lack of a better word. So now the car buyer doesn't feel like they're buying a new car. They feel like they're paying money to save the car they already have. And this is so slimy. And car dealers use this loss aversion tactic to wring tens of thousands of dollars out of car buyers And it's just the worst. (laughs) And I will say, this slimy car dealerships, Tesla was wise to avoid them, right? One of the perks of buying a Tesla is you don't have to buy it through a car dealership. You just buy it straight from Tesla, the company. And I wonder if some of the success of Tesla and why, you know, they sell out every car and there's a waiting list for all their cars. And part of that's not simply because people hate dealing with car dealerships. (laughs) Like treat customers well and they want to buy from you. Treat customers poorly and they don't. If you want to hear more about yo-yoing, I'll have a link to an NPR article about it. The article misses the psychological angle. They don't bring up loss aversion at all, but they do have a lot of really heartbreaking examples of this happening. It's become very common just in the last year. So is yo-yoing ethical, right? Let's go back to our two rules. I would say it breaks both of the rules, right? Car buyers are deceived into believing that they've purchased a car when they haven't really, right? There's fine print that says that the final sale is dependent on the loan originator being able to resell the loan to a you know financial company of some kind. And so very uh, deceptive. So it doesn't pass the first rule. And it also breaks the golden rule, right? No one wants to get yo-yoed back into a car dealership. 
Now, compare this with uh, what I would say is ethical yo-yoing, right? So a pet shelter lets you pet sit a shelter dog for a weekend, right? Their hope is that loss aversion will kick in and that giving the dog back to the shelter at the end of the weekend will feel like losing your dog, right? So is this pet shelter, pet sitting method ethical? I think it is. Why? Well, it doesn't break our rules, right? It's honest, right? Anybody sitting a shelter dog knows that the goal of the shelter is to get the dogs adopted, right? This this isn't a secret. <laughs> it's very upfront. And it also follows the golden rule, right? The ability to return the dog is a kindness, right? If the pet sitter and the dog don't click, there's no commitment to keep the dog, right? After all, all you agreed to do was watch the dog for a weekend. And so I think it's really important to keep these ethics in mind. And, and not just because maybe you, you're not an ethical person. You don't really care. You just want to make money. But I'll tell you, you're still going to make more money being an ethical marketer, right? Word gets around. People don't want to go to a Ford dealership that's yo-yoing them and changing the price. They'd rather pay more money for a Tesla that's going to treat them well, right? Like Ford is struggling. These companies are struggling compared to Tesla, which shouldn't happen, right? Historically, there's an interesting uh, parallel to this. The rise of the electric companies, Edison and electricity, part of the reason they boomed so quickly in the early 1900s was that the gas companies, which is how people lit their homes before electricity, were so shady and so manipulative and so mean that people were desperate to switch to this more dangerous and very expensive electricity, at the time anyway, just to get away from the gas companies. So don't be the 1905 gas company in New York City. Be the 1905 electricity company. It's going to treat people well. You treat your readers well. They are going to treat you well. I've put together an entire course on marketing psychology, and I'm announcing it right now. So this is a brand new course that teaches everything that I have to teach on marketing psychology. I'm putting the final touches on it right now, but I'm going to uh, make a point to have the sales page for it up where you can get it once this episode goes live. But you might already have access to this course. So I've decided to include my marketing psychology for authors course name pending. I might come up with a cooler name for it. But whatever the name ends up being, this course will be included in both Book Launch Blueprint and in Obscure No More. So if you're a Book Launch Blueprint student or alumni, you already have access to this course. If you're a current Obscure No More student, you already have access to this course. And if you are on the fence about signing up for the Book Launch Blueprint this year, let this be what pushes you over the edge because this is one of the and the nice perks signing up for the book launch blueprint is you get access to my marketing psychology for authors course that will take you not just through loss aversion, but all of the other psychological methods of influencing readers to want to buy your book. Our featured patron today is C.L.R. Peterson, author of Lucia's Renaissance, Heresy is Fatal in Late Renaissance Italy. So only a suicidal zealot would so much as whisper the name of Martin Luther. But after Luther's ideas ignite a young girl's faith, she must choose, abandon her beliefs, or risk her life in the turbulent world of late 16th century Italy. C.L.R. Peterson, thank you so much for being a patron 
of the Novel Marketing Podcast for being that tiny fraction that do go through the pain of giving money back to help keep this podcast on the air. I know that spending money is painful, and I appreciate that you're willing to spend a little bit of it on this podcast. We couldn't do this without you. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. The audio engineering is by William Umstadt. The blog post version is crafted by Shauna Lettler, and you can find that blog version, including links to everything I talked about and even some graphs and some pictures, at authormedia.com slash 361. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr. saying thank you for listening and live long and prosper.